what happens to you when you go through a trauma like a fire or a flood or in the case of Hurricane Katrina or many of the hurricanes that we've seen that have devastated um, parts of the world, you know, all the other climate driven disasters, whether it's drought or high temperatures, you know, those are events that have a long lasting effect on your psyche. And I've come to terms with the fact that as a friend of mine from Paradise said, when you when you lose everything, it's kind of it's a different kind of grief because it means that you've actually lost a part of yourself. I'm Nick Vitas, and this is Chronic Catastrophe, a podcast looking at what happens to our minds, our bodies, and our spirits while living through recurring environmental disasters. When there's a massive fire burning in our state, the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, who we call CAL FIRE, holds press conferences. And thanks to the regularity that our area burns, Sonoma County residents know quite a lot about them. During the conferences, the incident commander will talk about geography, like ridge lines and canyons, where the fire is and where it's going, where CAL FIRE has crews, and whether or not there's an air attack component to their efforts. A meteorologist will talk about the weather and red flag warnings, and the sheriff will discuss evacuation zones and orders. And then a public information officer will issue a fact sheet stating how many acres are scorched, how many fatalities we've suffered, and the number of structures damaged or destroyed. Since 2017, Sonoma County has lost more than 11,000 buildings. That figure includes offices, schools, our favorite wineries, banks, and barns. And of course, it also includes houses, garages, and sheds. The type of places where people live where they keep not only their clothes or their toothbrushes, but the collection of stuff they've acquired as they've made their way through life. Stuff like books and model cars, golf clubs and photo albums, teacups, or the outline of a new baby's handprint pressed into clay. When a building burns, what's left isn't just a heap of framing and shingles. It's a funeral pyre for the items that defined where we came from and where we've been. Losing all your stuff leaves some people feeling unmoored or lost and lonely. Families disagree about what it means to have roots and whether all that even matters as they move forward. Communities wrestle with newfound fame for reasons that don't exactly bring tourists flocking to visit. Everyone asks, now what? Is this where I belong? What am I supposed to do? And am I the same person I was before? There's a common sentiment shared after a catastrophe. It doesn't matter where you are when you behold our destruction. It doesn't matter whether you're driving by and seeing it firsthand, or whether you're in Oklahoma watching coverage on the evening news. Either way, more often than not, someone says, well, it's all just stuff. It can be replaced. The thing is, though, it's not. And a lot of it can't. What's been lost are the items that define who we are, the props we use to describe our character, as individuals, as families, and as a community. The losses from environmental disasters aren't just physical anymore, they're existential. 
And who do you turn to? What do you do when a fire or flood destroys what makes you, you? I think the main thing that happens to you when you lose everything in some kind of a climate-driven disaster or any disaster, it doesn't have to be driven by climate, but, you know, when you lose something, you grieve it. And so for me, the situation was that, as a friend of mine from Paradise said, when your house burns, you lose a part of yourself. And it's not the furniture. It's not the structure. It's those memories and the things that you've lost that are no longer there. Tyra Benoit embodies this idea that losses from catastrophe shouldn't only be framed as physical, but existential, which is a fancy way of saying the way humans understand the act of being in the world. Existentialism examines the way we act, the way we think, and the way we feel. Existential thinkers consider the meaning, the purpose and the value of human existence. It's philosophical and can get pretty meta, pretty heady. But understanding what happened to Tyra, or Ty as her friends call her, makes the principles of existentialism easier to understand and makes her grief and confusion relatable. In October 2017, Ty and her husband were living in a Sonoma County neighborhood called Larkfield Wikiup in what they thought would be their final house. A house moved into in 2008 on a beautiful two-acre piece of hillside property backing up to native forest. Ty was nearing retirement. She spent her career in higher education, both as an instructor and as an administrator. In 2007, Ty became the Dean of Arts, Communication Studies, and Social and Behavioral Sciences at Santa Rosa Junior College. She spent her professional life as a history professor teaching about ancient civilizations, and she traveled extensively to enhance her knowledge. Over the course of 40 years of travel and learning, Ty amassed a personal library of what she described as obscure journals and out-of-print books, all of which complemented her coursework and validated her as a global citizen. Her library was her pride and joy. We were just getting ready to settle in, and then the Tubbs fire happened on October 8th, 2017, and we were evacuated. Um, we ended up staying with some friends for a couple of days and we, you know, we weren't sure exactly what was going on with our house during the course of the evacuation because it looked to us like the fire was traveling a little bit to the south. Ty and her husband held it together while they waited for the news of their neighborhood. We got some notifications from our uh thermostat that said that the humidity was dangerously low. We had one of those that you could operate through your phone. And so we kept getting those notifications and that signaled to us, well, the house is still standing. And then the next morning on October 9th, we got notification from our security system that there had been a break in at both the front and back doors. And again, we took that as good news because we thought, oh, well, it's either the first responders are breaking in or looters were coming and we thought looters are better than losing your whole house. But then we realized that that was the exact moment that the house exploded from the fire. And about a day later, one of our neighbors 
had gone up there and and taken a photo that showed us that our house had not survived. Her house exploded and took her library with it. This is where someone might say, well, at least they got out in time. Their house, everything else, it's all just stuff. Yes, of course it's a blessing that they escaped. But minimizing the rest of a victim's losses can minimize their pain. It also ignores tough questions that pop up in the aftermath. The first question is usually, where do we go now? You just need a place to stay for a while, but then the questions get bigger, like, where do we belong? Ty faced both of these. Um, after that, we were placed into a hotel in Healdsburg, and our insurance paid for us to stay there. And then we ended up um, choosing not to rebuild. So we sold our lot. We just couldn't handle going back and seeing the remains. And we had sort of a bifurcated existence for a while. We weren't sure what we wanted to do. One of our sons had moved up to Idaho. So we actually moved to Boise, Idaho for a couple of years. But we decided that, that really wasn't home. They didn't feel like they belonged in Idaho. So they moved back to Sonoma County into a house in Healdsburg, half the size of the home they lost. When she returned, the administration asked Ty to come back and teach, to return to her history classes, but she just couldn't do it. I just found it too painful to think about what I had lost. Um, and many of the books were not books that I could just go and find again because I had I had traveled extensively, had done a number of Fulbrights and grants abroad, and so I had visited you know, ancient civilizations, the the archaeological sites that were left over, and you can't replace those books. They're not in print anymore. And so it was it was that struggle of trying to balance what I had had before and how it bifurcated into what I could do now and do with, um, you know, without just getting frustrated. I It was just a question of too much frustration and sadness. And I didn't want to face that anymore. After 40 years, Ty gave up academia altogether. But it was interesting when I was asked to come back and do that um, after the fire. As I would reach for one of the books that I had lost, it would bring back the grief. And so I finally decided that there was no way that I could keep teaching because I that I did need to leave behind. So after figuring out where they'd go and where they belonged... A hotel, then Idaho, and then back home to Sonoma County. Ty assessed her losses and answered the next question, an existential question. Who am I? For 40 years, she would have said, a world traveler, a dean, a professor. Now, in her mind, after losing her library, she wasn't. She couldn't be. Would I have kept teaching at the J.C.? Had the Tubbs fire not happened, I think so. Yeah, I would have kept going for another three or four years. I loved it. But it just came to an abrupt halt. It wasn't easy for her to have so much taken and so fast. I think as you grieve, you know, in my case, it was my library or mementos of my children's past. As you grieve that, you have to throw yourself into something that will help you overcome it. 
But Ty is plucky and tough. So she reimagined herself. She used her experience in research and reading. She leaned on her ability to distill information and impart it to others. And she leveraged the pain and grief she felt after the fire to become a climate activist. And so I had always been an activist in terms of the environmental movement, the civil rights movement, had been working my whole college career to try to diversify the curriculum so that everyone's voice would be heard. One of the things that I did as a result of the fire was it kind of pushed me into um, understanding more about energy efficient homes and climate change. And so I went to be trained by the Climate Reality Project, which is an organization that was started by Al Gore um, to address climate change. Ty lost part of herself with her library. And while she doesn't describe herself as an academic anymore, as a higher education professor of ancient civilizations, she was able to blend her sadness with her sense of self to another end. Trying to get involved both locally and internationally um, was my way of taking steps to be able to deal with that grief and also feel like I was making a difference for future generations because I think that's so critical. Um, and, you know, that's what teachers do is they're concerned about the future. They're concerned about what's going to happen in the future. And that's why we want to make sure that our students are well-educated. And so this was just my way of of taking that one step further. And it's also why she came back to Sonoma County from Boise. As a trained climate reality leader, I was going out and doing presentations to all these various groups, whether it was Rotary or city councils, um, trying to um, explain the, the situation related to climate change. But as Ty says, they weren't living it. Boise area residents know climate change is happening, but they're not feeling it as acutely as we are in Sonoma County. Yes, there are forest fires. It's not that Idaho doesn't have any forest fires, but they're off in the forests. They don't come into the cities. And so they can kind of push away the reality. And they all um, have this, you know, ability, at least in the the major connections that I made, they have this ability to, to rationally see the problem, but because it doesn't directly affect them in a way like we've been affected in Sonoma County, they, they can't relate as well. And they're not willing to make sacrifices in terms of their lifestyle, generally. Now, again, I'm generalizing. So that's, that's, it, it was, more comfortable to be in an environment where we could share the, the experience. She moved back because she wanted to live among people who understood the problem the same way. People who were willing to make the lifestyle changes she knows need to be made to reduce greenhouse gases. She moved back to be among people who identify the same way she does. It was sort of a curiosity more than anything else. People were very sympathetic, oh, you lost your home, but they didn't really feel the impact of climate change the way that we feel it in California. And therefore, they were living a lifestyle that was very different from the way we wanted to live. Time morphed from professor to climate activist, but losing everything doesn't necessarily mean you change your day job. 
You met Seamus Reed in episode one. He and his family lost their home in Coffee Park. They escaped in the middle of the night with sleeping bags and dog food, never imagining their house and everything inside would burn. No, I took like my hiking backpack. You know, we, I mean, it was a, felt like a disaster in terms of like, you need to be prepared for something, not prepared to never ever come back to your home. Um, so no, like none of the things that made me sentimental, none of those came with me. After the Tubbs fire, Seamus and his family moved into an apartment where he attempted to recreate his childhood bedroom. I have an Irish flag because I'm Irish American and I have an American flag. And those were actually the same flags that I had flying in my room when I was a kid up until 2017. And I replaced them after the 2017 fires and they were up in my apartment and they're sitting in a box in the garage now. Before the fires, Seamus lived the pretty standard life of an American boy. He lived with his mom, dad, and two older brothers in a suburban development where the boys shared a room. I mean, we shared all three of us for <laughs> until I was like 11 or something. And I was sharing with the middle brother through until like 2019 or so, which was fun when we were kids. And then we were two grown men sharing a small room, and that was weird. <laughs> Seamus was a Boy Scout, an Eagle Scout, in fact. He played in the neighborhood, went to the local elementary school, and did all the traditional kid stuff you'd expect. Life began to get a bit more complicated, though, as it does when you get older. Then the Tubbs fire hit. I mean, the fires, for all the terrible things that it did, I credit that kind of thing with making me, forcing me to grow up. You know, I was 18, very newly 18 when that happened. And still, I mean, very much a kid. And that was already coming at a tough time in my life. I was just graduating high school and starting at university. Um, a lot of my friends had gone away to college and I was staying at home. I had, I think the week prior, just gone through like a, a really tough breakup. And then my house is gone and the rug is just pulled from underneath me. And it, in a way, like the young, the kid was gone. It just didn't exist any longer. And that, that feels, <laughs> feels a bit Spartan to say, but I credit that kind of being pushed over the edge into manhood with, you know, forcing me to grow up. Some people, like Ty, find a new calling after a disaster. In Seamus's case, it propelled him into adulthood. I was just, you know, I was a kid. I was 18. I just got out of high school. And I had, of course, some experience with uh, life a little bit you know, through the Boy Scouts and through high school and meeting people. But uh, I think that having that much change forced on me over such a small amount of time, I think that made me a little harder to shake in terms of just general, you know, dealing with humans, dealing with hardships. It were things that might have made me panic in high school. Don't particularly bother me now. Overnight, 
Seamus says his nerves were steeled. They became more capable, more steady. It's a pretty powerful experience to claim for someone just out of high school. Hannah Cunha also feels different post-catastrophe. You met her in the first episode as well. Hannah's mom and stepdad live in Fountain Grove. Their house burnt down the same night as Seamus's. I'll let Hannah describe what she thinks of the neighborhood she grew up in. People automatically associate Fountain Grove with money. I think it's kind of like a judgy thing. And she doesn't necessarily disagree, but she also has a dark, oddball sense of humor, coated with some sarcasm, which you can hear as she explains her childhood. Um, And a lot of the kids there were really snobby and got whatever they wanted kind of thing. And my parents are the opposite. My mom's like, you know, I may work hard, but that doesn't mean you're going to get anything from it. So um, I just kind of thought they were all rude and no one was really nice. Everyone was really negative. And they all were like, oh, we're going to the Fountain Grove Club. And I'm just like, I don't want to go golf. Like, no, I don't care. Hannah has never loved Fountain Grove, but her desire to live a different lifestyle is even more pronounced now after the challenges of the past few years. Me, personally, I think I've changed 100%. I think I was a completely different person. I think it um, put life into perspective for me and my brother. Um, my brother is pretty materialistic, but he's gotten better. You know, I think even from the fires and coronavirus, like people dying, he's realized, like, that's not always the most important thing. My mom um, changed a lot, too. I don't know if, like, in a positive way, she kind of just kind of lost herself a little. Um, which is really sad, but I think she's getting more back into the groove. Now Hannah sees herself as a thrift store shopper who wants to live in hippie Sebastopol or out in Bodega Bay. And she sounds a lot like Seamus when she reflects on the overall experience of the Tubbs fire. I don't think the fires are a good thing, but I do think that they helped me a lot, and I don't think I would be the same person I am today. I care a lot more about the environment, and what's actually important, I don't think I would be as interested in journalism or, like, politics or, like, trying to save the world, you know, that kind of thing. I think everyone's changed, even my friends, too. Like, everyone doesn't take life for granted, which I think is good. Surviving the Tubbs fire shifted their perspectives and gave Ty, Seamus, and Hannah different answers to questions like, What's important? What do I care about? What's worth my time? and where do I want to be as I move on? But there's also another question. Who do I want to be with? It's not uncommon for individuals to rely on family when times are tough. Children move back in with parents, or adults like Ty and her husband move closer to their adult children. But when a whole family has to move on after a trauma like this, it's not easy. Families who seemed super in sync might suddenly realize they're more fractured than they thought, and they don't all want the same things anymore. In Seamus' case, his name alone might tip you off to part of his family identity, pride in their Irish heritage. He grew up in the classic Irish name and hung an Irish flag in his bedroom. Seamus' parents moved to Sonoma County from Southern California when Seamus was one. They lived in their house in Coffee Park for 17 years, Mom, Dad, and the three boys. The Reed family escaped just like Attell from episode one, and they came back just like she did, to an empty lot. At that point, Seamus's parents had a choice to make. Do they rebuild in the same location, 
or do they move? They decided to stay put. They rebuilt on the same property within the same footprint, although now they have a two-story house, and Seamus and his brothers have their own rooms finally. Seamus's parents decided rebuilding in Coffee Park was the right move for them, but Seamus doesn't agree. You know, and, and the idea of rebuilding in the same plot that has been historically a path for wildfires, it, I wouldn't have made that same decision that my parents made to rebuild. Hannah feels the same way. Her mom and stepdad didn't rebuild, but bought a house just down the block, one that didn't burn. We ended up buying a house in Fountain Grove. So that's, yeah, we sold our lot and uh, we, they bought a house in Fountain Grove. I think it's the dumbest thing ever, but you know, they, they love it, so that's great. A lot of people in their late teens and early 20s disagree with their parents, but Seamus and Hannah's opinions aren't just about youthful rebellion. They don't feel safe in their neighborhoods where they grew up. Both Coffee Park and Fountain Grove are within footprints of multiple historic fires. 1870, 1939, 1964, and 2011. They both feel confident their areas will burn again. And neither of them feel tied to their neighborhoods in the same way their parents do. It makes you wonder, will the same long-held principle of putting down roots matter as much in the future? Because continuing on this path might make it impossible to continue living in the places we were raised, even if we wanted to. There's an additional wrinkle in Hannah's family and her identity within it, and it has to do with why the Tubbs fire even happened to begin with. On the night of October 8th, 2011, the air was hot and dry. The landscape was parched, and the wind was strong. The conditions were ripe for fire, and all that was missing was a spark. At around 10 p.m., Sonoma County emergency dispatchers sent fire crews to respond to at least 10 reports of downed power lines and exploding transformers. These sparks started what came to be called the Wine Country Fires, one of which was the Tubbs. After CAL FIRE contained the fires, the agency's investigators got to work figuring out the causes. In January of 2019, CAL FIRE issued a report that determined energy company Pacific Gas and Electric, also known as PG&E, was at fault for all of the wine country fires, except the Tubbs. Investigators concluded the Tubbs fire was caused by a property owner's privately maintained electrical system, not PG&E. This would have massive implications for survivors and their lawsuits. Residents were outraged, and many of them wanted to prove Cal Fire wrong. PG&E filed for bankruptcy that same month, since it was staring down billions of dollars in liability. Because of the bankruptcy, survivors assumed they wouldn't recoup their losses, and even if they could, Tubbs Fire survivors weren't included anyway. In 2019, the federal judge who oversaw the bankruptcy cases agreed to a hearing for the Tubbs Fire victims. Their attorneys asked for a civil trial in state court, one with a jury, to resolve whether PG&E was responsible for the Tubbs Fire as well. The judge agreed to the trial. The case was supposed to go to court in January of 2020, but a month before, in December, PG&E accepted liability for the Tubbs Fire as part of settling its bankruptcy reorganization plan. The settlement for all the wine country fires is worth $13.5 billion, and the victims will be paid partly from a pool of cash and partly from liquidated stock. 
In July of 2020, PG&E funded the Fire Victim Trust with $5.4 billion in cash, plus company stock that covered most of the $13 billion obligation. Sonoma County residents are furious with PG&E because they say the company's executives failed to harden the grid and invest in underground transmission lines. All at the same time, they were increasing executive pay and spending billions lobbying the federal government to reduce regulation. It also bears mentioning that since 2011, PG&E has been found at fault or suspected of causing multiple fires across the state, including the Kincaid Fire and the Camp Fire, which killed 86 people near Paradise, California, and burned 153,000 acres, an area larger than the size of Chicago. There aren't a lot of people on PG&E's side around here. And that brings us back to Hannah's family. Hannah's mom and dad are divorced and both remarried. Um, so my stepmom used to work for the gas department. She injured herself, so now she's a clerk. Um, and then my dad has been with PG&E forever, and he started as a meter reader, and then he was a welder, and now he actually has apprentices, and he teaches welding. So Hannah's dad and stepmom work for PG&E. But her mom and stepdad lost their house in a fire PG&E ultimately accepted responsibility for. It makes things for Hannah a little, well, complicated. Yeah, my grandma will talk about it like, oh, PG&E, you know, screw PG&E. And then she's like, no offense to your dad. And I'm like, my dad doesn't care. Like, okay. Um, so, yeah, or like, I used to like defend because I've always been like a daddy's girl or whatever so I used to defend my dad to my stepdad and be like yeah well you know everyone makes mistakes and he's like we're suing Pigeony so that would be like there'd always be arguments like that she describes her dad and stepmom's position this way they kind of their overall thing was what is it going to benefit Pigeony paying people they get the point right they lost their homes, I get it, but that's what insurance companies are, like, for, I guess. They were like, it's not going to make the house come back. So they just want, they just think it's people trying to find someone to blame. Um, they think a big part of it, besides the pg e fire, which they do think was totally pg es fault, is just climate change, and people don't want to do anything about it or make a change. That's true for a lot of people, but not Ty. After moving back to Healdsburg, she and her husband decided to use alternative energy for two reasons. The choice was made that we're living in Healdsburg, we don't have to have PG&E electric, and we don't have to have PG&E gas. So we disconnected the gas completely, and I have the little um, statement of disconnect that I will frame eventually as a as a signat- you know signatory to, I don't want to have to work with PG&E. I think that the things that they did... Um, to not maintain the equipment were criminal offenses. And they've acknowledged that they caused a lot of this damage. And I just didn't want to give them any more money. So this was my way of personally taking a stand about climate change, but also making sure that I didn't um, foster a relationship with that corporation. Family dynamics can get a bit complicated after a disaster. Hannah was only about 14 during the Tubbs fire. She's 18 now. And she was in a complex situation which could have been tricky to navigate at any age, never mind as a teenager. 
Seamus wrestles with the idea that the home his parents built, the place he was raised, might not be a place he wants to continue calling home. He thinks it's too risky and too anxiety-inducing for half the year. And Ty? Ty and her husband followed their son and his family to Idaho. But Ty decided she'd rather be in Sonoma County, even if it meant additional distance from her son. So she's back home with a new identity. One she's trying to use to transform her community. In October 2019, PG&E took a new approach to reducing wildfire risk public safety power shutoffs. The idea is that PG&E will purposely cut off the power when it's hot, dry, and exceptionally windy to prevent downed equipment from sparking. On one hand, this feels like the right thing to do. On the other, it's incredibly frustrating and can be dangerous in other ways, like for people who need power at home for health reasons. The shutoffs might be necessary now, but it doesn't feel like this is a long-term solution particularly because utilities aren't the only source of sparks. In 2020's Lightning Complex fires, which included the Wallbridge, Glass, and Myers, those were started by dry lightning, a storm without any rain. Sonoma County residents need to be prepared for a fire regardless of the cause, and they're grappling with how to stay safe, and not just on an individual level or as a household. They're trying to figure out how to keep their neighborhood safe, how to survive as a whole group. Larry Robinson is the retired therapist and former Sebastopol mayor who we introduced in episode one. He and his wife were stuck in bumper to bumper traffic, fleeing one of our recent fires. He said all those people were just sitting ducks who could have been killed if the fire moved in their direction. Larry's neighborhood was spared but after seeing the destruction in other parts of the, of the county, Larry knew it was time to refresh the old emergency plan he and his neighbors developed for the big one, the major earthquake that's overdue in California. We started holding neighborhood meetings. There's, there's about 20 houses in our neighborhood on my, on my block and a couple of the short blocks around it. Working with a group called Map Your Neighborhood, which it's actually a program that was developed by FEMA to help communities prepare for disasters. We, we had actually done this about a dozen years ago and just in preparation for um, possibility of an earthquake, knowing that when the big quake comes, our first responders are not going to be available for at least a couple of weeks and neighborhoods and communities will have to take care of themselves. This time, they took specific steps to identify individual properties and the needs of individual neighbors. Two years ago, we started having neighborhood meetings and um, identifying, first of all, what vulnerabilities we had in our, in our neighborhood, who needs oxygen, who has mobility issues, things like that, and what skills and tools are available in the neighborhood. And identifying, and then we walked around to every house in the neighborhood so everybody could see where the gas shutoff is. So we can, if, if, if somebody's not home, we can shut off the gas and agree where we're going to gather um, in the event of a disaster and how we're going to check on each other. So um, the first 
round of fires brought our community, our, our neighborhood together. And I know this is true with many other neighborhoods in Sebastopol. And I know in Santa Rosa and, and Windsor, people have been doing something similar. Everyone is planning, including Father Alvin Villaruel, pastor at St. Francis Solano Catholic Church, who reached out to a local branch of a Catholic-connected charity that supports the hungry, the homeless, and the struggling, regardless of their faith. When I came on board here at St. Francis, the first thing I did was to talk to St. Vincent de Paul, and I told them that I'd like to have a disaster plan uh, response for our parish. Villaruel recognizes that when a disaster hits, anyone can become hungry, homeless, and struggling. We are also preparing, uh, for example, um, if uh, the Red Cross or uh, the National Guard would be needing our facility, uh, we're sort of preparing for that as well. It's not an abstraction here anymore to wonder what you'd do in a catastrophe. For the past four years, um, it's, of course, it's been very difficult. But as uh, you know, uh, we have to be leaders, and leaders always are very courageous in facing these difficulties. But um, courage only comes if you are properly educated in the, the situation, uh, but also if you are prepared. And um, the first fire that happened um, kind of, at least in our area, uh, we were so unprepared that uh, we were not able to handle everything that came before, before us. In some communities that didn't burn, the social fabric is being knit even tighter. Neighbors are welcoming each other into their basements, climbing around holiday decorations and boxes of old trophies to make sure that they can save one another if need be. Places of worship are openly preparing to become shelters run by the National Guard. But for neighbors that did disappear overnight, their fabric is frayed, and it can be a long, long time before it's patched. That's how Ty describes her old neighborhood. We had a friend who was a lawyer who had lost his house in the Oakland Hills fire in the early 90s. And he kind of brought that reality home to us. He said, you know, if you rebuild, you're going to be in a neighborhood that's been destroyed for um, a period of probably 10 years before that um, sense of community and that connection with your neighbors is going to resurface again. And since we had just, you know, we were in our late 60s, early 70s, we just decided that we didn't want to wait 10 years. That would take us all the way into our 80s. And emotionally, it was just too difficult. Ty's friend's guidance proved valuable. Now when I go back there, I see what he was talking about because it's been three and a half years. And most of the homes in our neighborhood have not been finished. I would say about half of them have not even started. And those neighbors that did rebuild that are in the process of that. They're talking about how constantly there's construction traffic going by and it's noisy and it's dusty. And then for us, it was also this choice of maybe we shouldn't live in a wildland urban interface where there is the chance of future fires. And that's certainly been borne out because the Kincaid fire actually threatened our neighborhood again. Ty and her husband sold their lot in May of 2018, 
seven months after the Tubbs fire. The woman who bought the property, nothing has happened. She's told our neighbors she can't afford to build on there. So I don't know how long that lot will stay empty. It's just very sad. And every time I drive through the neighborhood, I get very sad um, just looking at what was there. That said, Ty hasn't turned her back on the broader Sonoma County community. Instead, she's taking action to protect it. Ty and Larry are embodying a new iteration of the county's unofficial motto, Sonoma Strong. It was coined to sum up the support we gave to one another immediately after the 2017 fires. It showed how we found beds and meals and clothing for our neighbors, how we helped them in their time of need. But Ty and Larry's version of Sonoma Strong means more than that. It means having the tenacity to make serious changes that will protect their communities in the future. And, um, and you know, just to be strong, um, I, I think it's not just a slogan. You see it all the time, strong Santa Rosa, strong Sonoma. But actually, that is uh, the spirit of, the, of our humanity is to be strong uh, because we go through so much in our lives that we have to face them head on. But at the same time, hold the hands of the people who are actually reaching out to you and say, you know, uh, I need help. The first reports of a wildfire come in when someone sees smoke. Let's say it's October and we're under a red flag warning because it's hot, dry, and windy. In an effort to calm their nerves, a Sonoma County resident tunes in to one of the many firewatch cameras that keeps an eye on our neighborhoods in our backcountry. It's dusk, but in the lower corner of the screen, the resident can see smoke in the redwood canopy. They call 911 to report a fire. Dispatch alerts the appropriate local fire department, and the firefighters, sometimes professional, sometimes volunteer, suit up and pile into their engines. That local crew will get out there, lay eyes on the fire, and do what they can to put it out. If the fire gets more intense, if it grows in acreage or power, if it heads towards a populated area, that local crew will call for mutual aid. They'll ask nearby departments to come help. And if it gets beyond the scope of those combined operations, they'll call in Cal Fire, the professionals from the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection, the agency that sends crews of hotshots and inmates to manage the blaze. Cal Fire might deploy an air assault with its more than 60 airplanes and helicopters. It's the largest civil aerial firefighting fleet in the world. As the fire gets more serious, so does the fight against it. But something small happens during this very big process. A decision is made. One that's not really a decision at all, but a function of geography. Someone, a firefighter, a dispatcher, the person who saw the smoke, someone does something that indicates this fire is profound. They name it. Hanley. Tubbs. Atlas. Nuns. Kincaid. Glass. Wallbridge. These fires each earned a name, and with it, an identity. Some fires are killers. They strike fast and take lives with what feels like no remorse. Others are equalizers. They disappear homes belonging to the wealthy, the middle class, and the poor in equal measure. Some fires are sprinters that travel at extraordinary speed regardless of what's in their way. 
Others are slow burns, churning steadily and methodically along. The Tubbs was a beast who showed no mercy. It torched everything in its 12-mile sweep across northeast Santa Rosa, regardless of property value. And it killed 22 people in just a couple of hours. The Kincaid was a split personality, a homewrecker and a thief. Launched by 100-mile-an-hour winds, the Kincaid kicked out half the county from their homes. And then after several days without power, forced all those people to ditch the entire contents of their refrigerators and freezers. The wall bridge was unwavering and resolute. It wasn't a massive front like the other two, but more focused in its intensity. It plodded through the hills and valleys of wine country and could easily have hopscotched along the Russian River from Healdsburg all the way out to the Pacific. Hearing these names tells Sonoma County residents all we need to know about where the fire burned, what it destroyed, and who it took with it. These names stay with us, and the list is only getting longer. Fire has always been destructive, but it's also always been a powerful symbol of renewal. Take the phrase, baptism by fire, which means a swift initiation into a role that changes you. It dates back to biblical times, or the story of the phoenix, the immortal bird that rises from its own ashes. That story dates back to ancient Egypt. And then there's the present-day function of a crucible, the ceramic pot that holds metal as it melts, ready to be shaped into something new. For Sonoma County residents, these metaphors are accurate abstractions of our very real lives, of we who are constantly tested, and hopefully, renewed. Like Hannah says, I just think it's funny because people always look at the negative and it just, I mean, I do the same thing, but sometimes there's good things out of it. Like now firefighters are prepared. Like what if this just happened? What if it never happened? I think going through trauma is sometimes helpful because it makes you a stronger person. Ty feels the same way. It's one of those um, journeys that you never want to have to make, but when you make it, you also become stronger as a result. Stronger as a result is what we hope continues to happen. That after each environmental disaster, we get stronger, we become smarter, and we're finally willing to make individual climate-related sacrifices that benefit each other on the whole. I think there's two ways that communities react to shared trauma. One is to bond more closely, and another is to isolate and, and blame. And frankly, I did not see very much of this at all in, in Sonoma County. And my hope is that these experiences we've had of sharing survival and evacuation and power outages will give us a sense of community that will undergird the resilience that we'll need to get through the next one that comes. The next one that comes. The next one. It's only a matter of time before there's another catastrophe. And after it hits, who will we be? Will we be professors or activists? Children or adults? People who argue on neighborhood message boards, or neighbors in arms who band together for survival? Will we still be the community known for our coast, our redwoods, and our wine? 
or will we always be known as the place that burns every October? People like Ty and Seamus and Hannah and Larry, they know how to answer this question for themselves. But for those who can't answer it just yet, Father Alvin Villaruel has something for us to keep in mind. We may not know how a catastrophe will change us, but that's not all that matters. There will be someone there to to help. You're not alone. And that's an important thing to remember during a disaster. You are not alone. Next time on Chronic Catastrophe. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I, I don't know if I want to rebuild. You know, I love living here. For decades, I loved living here. But that was then, and this is now, and the world has changed. Sonoma County is a beautiful place, but it's not always easy to live here anymore. To live through these bad air days, evacuations and fires, floods and their fallout. Some people don't know whether they can call it home anymore. I I see a future in where I have to go and live somewhere where this isn't reality. But others don't see a place where escape is possible because catastrophe is spreading. Instead, it's about transforming our lives. It's about getting used to it, about making life work here in Sonoma County. And he would say this is about adaptability. And we have to adapt to these changes. And we should teach our child how to adapt to these changes. Of course, it's not always that simple. So it's, it's a real social justice uh, story as well, because in the Bay Area, you know, as, as bad as it got last year, a lot of folks had the resources where they could just go somewhere else for a little while, for, you know, a few days or a few weeks. Uh, you can't do that if you're living on uh, the reservation in the Yurok uh, tribe or, or the, the Hoopa Valley tribe. In the next episode, we talk about whether it's worth it to live here, and if not, Who's in a position to leave, and where will they choose to go? I'm Nick Vitas, and this is Chronic Catastrophe, a podcast brought to you by a grant from the California Humanities through the Democracy and Informed Citizen Emerging Journalist Fellowship Program. This episode was produced by me, Rebecca Bell, Maritza Camacho, and Lauren Spates. The score was written by Fabian Metalman. Special thanks to James Demizio and to Ann Belden, our advisor at Santa Rosa Junior College, for her unwavering support and valuable guidance and witty humor. Episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. <laughs>